Well, if you got your Bibles, open them up to uh, Hebrews chapter three, and we're gonna pick up uh, where we left off last week. Uh, it looks like the uh, fog has kept a few of us away. Um, it wasn't bad for me driving in from Fort Worth until I hit Parker County, and then it was like a wall. Um, and everybody slowed down except the 18-wheelers, um, and they're the ones who scare me the most. So we're going to pick up, like I said, where we left off. And uh, it was interesting, last week, uh, one of the questions had to do with um, faithfulness. And on Thursday night, after I finished teaching, this uh, young man came up and he goes, I don't get that question at all. I said, what part do you not get? And he goes, I don't get any of it. And it was a question having to do with faithfulness and how faithfulness shows up in our current context. And so we had a little discussion and I, and I think he got it. But I wanted to go back and, and visit that because at the end of our lesson last week, uh, we kind of went through this pretty quickly, but here's what the author of Hebrews says. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, He's, he's emphasizing these two men, Moses and then Christ, Jesus, uh, and he's talking about their faithfulness. And one of the things that, that came out last week as I sat at various tables is um, I think we misunderstand faithfulness. Um, we all know we're to be faithful, but I think we sometimes misunderstand what faithfulness is because he raises Moses as a faithful man and, of course, Jesus as a faithful man. And then he says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So he's calling us to be faithful like Moses was faithful and faithful as Christ was faithful. And I think what happens is we, we start thinking, well, okay, how do I do that? Um, and we think of faithfulness as something that we have to produce and we have to produce it perfectly. In other words, we have to be perfectly faithful. And there's a problem with that because if, if that's your approach to faithfulness, I hate to break the news to you, you're gonna fail. Uh, you cannot be perfectly faithful. As a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as an employer, you will never be perfectly faithful in this life. And yet we're called to faithfulness. But it's less about perfection than it is about perseverance. This is huge to me. Because this is what keeps coming back up in this letter is he's calling these people to just persevere, hang in there, don't give up, don't go back, don't turn loose, keep going on. And we live in a day and age where we need to learn to persevere. And that's really what he's calling them to. And the word, it, it literally means to hold fast, to retain, to hang on to like a dog with a rag. You just are not gonna let go. You, you keep it secure. Faithfulness, again, is not about um, perfection. It's the fact that you're not going to let go of this great salvation that you've been given. You're not gonna turn your back on it. You're not gonna negate it, neglect it, minimize it. You're gonna remind yourself over and over again how great this thing really is. And, I, and this led me to a passage that I think, I, I've read this passage so many times, but I've never read it in this way. Listen to what Paul says in Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast, there's that same word, what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now we've, we've all heard this verse, we've read this verse, you may have memorized this verse, especially the first part, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. 
But here's what jumped out at me. Look, look at what he says. Rejoice how often? Always. Are you kidding me? I, I can't even rejoice sometimes, um, but rejoice always. And then he says, pray with what? Without ceasing. Never ending. Always current. All the time. Prayer. Give thanks. How often? In all circumstances. See, I like to pick and choose my circumstances. Uh, I'll give thanks for this. I'll give thanks for that, but I'm not going to give thanks for that. Then he goes on, for this is the will of God. This is what God's will is for you. And then he says, oh, and don't quench the spirit, which basically means don't ever quench the spirit. Ever. At any moment, at any time, don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test what? Everything. You see how inclusive this is? This is like, you can't cherry pick. You can't just say, well, I'll rejoice part of the time. I'll pray sometimes. No, it's all the time, ever ceasing, never ceasing. And then hold fast to what is good. And the, the tense of that is constantly. Hold fast constantly to what is good. And then abstain from every form of evil. How well are you doing on that one? You know, man, I failed that test easily. So what's going on here? And again, I've never read this passage in this way, but it, this is impossible. Everything about that passage is impossible. But here's the question, is it really? It is impossible if you try to do it. If you try to rejoice Always, you'll fail. You can't do it. You can't muster that up. And all of this ties back to faithfulness, right? That those are really signs of faithfulness, but you can't make it happen, which leads me to verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. That's the key. Who helps you be faithful? God. Who's responsible for keeping you secure? God. It's not you. It's not me. That doesn't mean I don't have a role to play, but he will surely do it. See, as he writes these, these Jewish Christians who are living outside of Israel, and they're living among Gentiles, pagan Gentiles, most of whom can't stand them because they're Jews, and they doubly can't stand them because they're Jewish Christians, and their Jewish neighbors and friends don't like him either because they've accepted this Messiah. He's telling them that, hey, be faithful, hang on, remain secure, steadfast, hold on, because God's holding on to you. See, our faithfulness is based on the faithfulness of God. And that's why he keeps saying, look at Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him because this great salvation is not something you came up with. Not, it's not something you produced. It's something God made possible through Jesus Christ. So you got to keep reminding yourself that it's he who saved me and it's he who will keep me saved. So we're to pursue sanctification, right? Growth in godliness, Christ likeness. We're to pursue it. We're to make it a high priority. But at the end of the day, it's all based on he will one day finish the job. You will ne never in this lifetime be fully sanctified. Not gonna happen. But you can increase in sanctification, godliness, holiness, Christ-likeness. 
based on the promise that one day Jesus Christ is going to come back and you will be fully glorified and be like him. That's what we hold on to. That's the confidence that we're to have. And that's why we're to boast. Boast in what? My ability to hold on, no, in his promise that one day I will be fully glorified. And that's going to lead into everything we're going to talk about tonight as we move into the next section of this passage. And it reminds me of chapter 11, verse 1. And this is another verse you're very familiar with. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Faithfulness is based on faith in something that has not yet happened. What has not yet happened? Jesus Christ has not called you home and he has not yet come back. I hope that's not news to you. Something great is going to yet happen, and that's our hope, because if that does not happen, we have no hope. I think I said this week one or week two, but if, if all Jesus Christ did is come and die, rise again, and ascend back to heaven, but he doesn't come back, we have no hope. You can't persevere. You can't hold on. There's nothing to hold on to, because if he doesn't come back, we don't get glorified. If he doesn't come back, then all the other promises he made are untrue. But see, what he told the disciples is, I go, but I'm coming back. See, that's what we hold on to. That's, that's what we persevere based on. Faithfulness is, is about persevering because you know how the story ends. It's hard to persevere when you don't know the outcome, right? I guarantee Oscar's mom and dad are going to persevere, but it's going to be really hard because they don't know the outcome of the surgery. They're prayerfully hoping, just as we should be, for a positive outcome, just like Terry Pray. But see, we can't guarantee, we don't know what's going to happen. But here's what we do know. Jesus Christ is one day coming back, and I can persevere. I should be able to handle anything based on that fact, that reality. That's why in verse seven, he says, therefore, therefore what? What we just looked at. Based on the fact that we have something tangible that we can hold on to, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This is another one of those situations where he is going to go back to the Old Testament and he's done it repeatedly. Um, and he quotes Old Testament passages that we're not necessarily familiar with, but they were. They knew exactly what he's talking about. He didn't have to give the verse and the chapter. As soon as he started quoting it, they knew, oh, that's Psalms. That's Psalm 8. That's Psalm 35. That, that's David. So he, he quoted from the Old Testament, and he's making a point, and he's quoting from the Old Testament because what? They're Jews. In the Old Testament, the scriptures he's quoting are their Hebrew scriptures. And so he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Wouldn't you love Jesus to say that about you? Would you love God to say that? About you? He always goes astray in his heart. But that's exactly what God said about the Israelites. And then he says, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is going to be kind of the theme for this lesson. They didn't listen 
they didn't know his ways and they didn't enter his rest. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about Old Testament Israelites under the leadership of Moses, didn't do these things, didn't enjoy his rest, but who's he addressing it to? First century Israelites who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He's using the old in order to communicate something to this generation of Israelites. He's going back in their history and he makes a point of emphasizing, they shall not enter my rest. This, this one is gonna, I hope, be huge for you because it's been huge for me. And it's this idea of rest. I don't know about you, but I could use some rest. Not a nap, not one more hour of sleep, but true rest that Jesus Christ said he came to bring. And this is the whole point. But it's interesting, he says, the Holy Spirit says, what he's doing is he's quoting an Old Testament passage, but he attributes it to who? The Holy Spirit, which means it's divine. This is the author of Hebrews letting these people know that when God said that back then, it was the word of God and it's still the word of God. So he's quoting from Psalm 95. We're not told in Psalm 95 who the author is, but this guy's saying it was the Holy Spirit. See, we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's God's word written by men, but given to them by God, inspired by God. And so he's basically saying what your ancestors heard was the word of God. And it was written down by the psalmist under the inspiration of the spirit. And that means those words, Psalm 35, are timeless and relevant even today for you and me. Why? Because they come from God. God has something he's trying to tell you this morning. And he's been telling me for the last couple of weeks. And I want you to share in it. I want you to understand what he's promising you in these words. He's warning you, but he's also promising you something. He's warning you to hang on, persevere, hold fast, so that you might have something that he has for you. And that's rest. So here's what Psalm 95 says in the opening verses. It's interesting that he quotes starting in verse seven and he leaves out verses one through six. Listen to what it says. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Then he goes on. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Isn't it interesting that he begins really in the same way that the author of Hebrews does with a picture of God, the creator God. This is our God. It's not unlike Psalm 8 where David says, I look up into the heavens and I'm amazed at what you've created, the universe that you've created. What is man that you are mindful of him? And here's this psalmist doing basically the same thing. Man, check this out. Look, look at our great creator God. Look how amazing he is. This is the opening. And these people would have gotten it. They would have known the opening verses of this chapter, even though the author of Hebrews doesn't quote them. I think what he's trying to get them to understand is that you need to have a proper appreciation of your God. This God that 
has sent his son to die on your behalf, and now you're getting ready to walk away from him and go back to the old ways, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the sacrificial system, this same God is telling you, no, no, no. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what he said when he walked the earth. Don't forget, this is what he's trying to get them to do. Well, how does he describe this God? He's the rock of your salvation. He's quoting from Psalm 35, which was written literally thousands of years earlier. He's, he's still the God of your salvation. He's worthy of your thanks. Not your complaints, not your murmuring, not your bickering about, well, this thing hadn't turned out the way I thought it was. This Jesus, this Messiah hasn't turned out to be much of a Messiah because he's nowhere to be found and the Romans are still in rule and we're still under persecution. No, he's worthy of thanks. He's the source of all our praise, all our thanksgiving. If you wanna thank anybody for anything, thank God for what? For his grace, his mercy, his goodness, because he's a great God. He's a great king above all gods. See, this is what this Psalm tells the people of Israel, both during the Psalmist day, but also during the first century when this letter was written. He's our maker and he's our God. So those are the opening verses of Psalm 35. The author of Hebrews has not quoted those, but he begins in verse seven. And he says, today, right now, right here, as I write, as you read today, do what? If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So he's taken something written for their ancestors and he's brought it forward and says, hey, right here, right now, today, if you hear his voice, what's the point? It was God's voice then, it's God's voice now. He's still the same God, he's still the creator God, he's a great God, worthy of praise, worthy of honor, worthy of reverence. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So this is where the author begins, but they as Jews knew the rest of the story. They knew exactly how that Psalm began. And he doesn't have to quote it. See, if I said, for God so loves the world, most of you could finish that sentence, right? They could finish the sentence. They knew how it began, and now he's emphasizing the point he wants to emphasize. Listen, why would you not listen to this great God? This great God who created the universe, this great God that the psalmist praised, that David praised in Psalm 8. Why wouldn't you listen to this great God? Because guess what? He has spoken. He spoke then, he's speaking now. That's why he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. Don't harden your heart. Don't not listen. See, not listening is what hardened your heart when you just refuse to listen to the words of God, the promises of God, and it leads you to what? Rebellion. What did the Israelites living under Moses do? Repeatedly rebel. We looked at this when we studied the book of Exodus. They grumbled, they complained, they murmured, they, they wanted to go back, they hated the food, they hated the, the, everything along the way they hated, and yet God kept providing for them and providing for them. But see, this is a reference to one particular rebellion that the author wants to point out. And see, these people, because they're Jews and they were raised on these stories, they knew exactly what he's talking about, what rebellion. See, he opened up, this letter with these words, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, what days? The day in which he's writing this letter, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, the days in which we live, and we are living in the last days even now, he has spoken to us, how? By his son. We don't have prophets anymore. We don't have men and women walking around who are predicting the future and speaking on behalf of God, telling us things that we don't yet know. We have everything we need in the scriptures. That's why we don't need prophets. We need preachers. We need those who will unpack what God has said and make it applicable and understandable. But we don't have prophets because God has spoken through his son and we have everything we need to know. But he says, God has spoken. And what he's telling them is you don't want to repeat the sins that your forefathers committed in the rebellion. And guess what? Neither do we. See, this is a timeless book. And so that means what he's telling them applies to you and me as well, which means that I too could be guilty of rebellion, rebelling against God, allowing my heart to become hardened because I don't trust his word. See, they knew that what their ancestors did was not a good thing. Nobody looked back on that occasion with joy and pride and go, man, that was so cool when our parents refused to go into the promised land. You know, wish I'd have been there. No, you know, you don't. And, and so they know the point that he's trying to make and he's bringing it home and he's reminding them, hey, your ancestors did it and you're about to do the same thing because God has spoken through his son and you're about to say no to his son. That's what their ancestors did. They heard God speak and they refused to do what he says. They failed to obey. God spoke, don't wanna do it. How did they do it? And how did it manifest itself? They didn't trust the goodness and the grace of God. They, he says this land is ours, but we're not going in because we don't think he can pull it off. They, they don't feel like he is great enough a God to do what he said he was gonna do. But how did Psalm 35 open up? What a great God greater than all the kings of the earth. He's the maker of the universe. You can trust him. He can do whatever he says he can do. And because they disobeyed, they paid for it with their lives. This is a pretty stern warning, right? To these Israelites living in the first century in Gentile countries, the author is trying to get them to understand you're about to repeat the worst sin your ancestors ever committed by doing what you're thinking about doing, going back to the old ways, rejecting Messiah and going back to the law, turning your back on grace for earning, works versus grace. So what I wanna do is just take a second to go back and look at what they did. And for most of us in the room, this is gonna be a review, but in Deuteronomy chapter one, it recounts what the Israelites did when they got to the promised land, when they got to the border, when we did the book of Exodus, I repeatedly said the people are going to, they're standing on the banks of the Jordan River waiting to cross over to get into the land that God had promised. And the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses writing to those people before they ever go into the land. And this is how he opens that book. Then we set out from Horeb and we went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country, the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country, the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Go up, take possession. I got you here. 
I promised it to you. All you have to do is go up and take possession. And then he says, do not fear or be dismayed. Now, this is Moses writing in retrospect, okay? He's telling these people, and he's really writing to the second generation who are now standing on the banks, and he's reminding them, God has given you this. God has given you this land. Go in and take possession. It's yours. It's your inheritance. God has promised it. Go take it. See, there's action involved, but it's based on what? The faithfulness of God. I gave it to you, I will help you take it. But you gotta go take it. Be faithful because I'm faithful. Trust me is basically what he's saying. He had given them the land as their possession. And sometimes we, we blow past this, that this land is yours. It's completely yours. You just need to go take it. But it was occupied. Was that news to God? No, God told them it was occupied but it's okay, I'm gonna give it to you. The land is occupied, lots of people living there, but I'm gonna make it yours. And then he says, and it's rich, it's abundant. It's, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It will meet all your needs. It's yours, it's your inheritance, I've given it to you. I will help you conquer all those nations. All you have to do is go in and take it. See, look at this. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It's a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. Then he goes on. It's a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It's a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant as the hills. Why is that important? Because they're going to be able to make farming implements. They're going to be able to make vessels to cook their food. In. They're going to have everything they need. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Isn't that interesting? It's already yours. I've given it to you. You just need to go take it. And, and you're gonna find it to be rich and abundant and full of all you need. Yet, you wouldn't go up. You wouldn't take what I gave you. You wouldn't take advantage of all the blessings but instead you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. I read this and I so wanna slap them upside the head. I really do. I just wanna go, oh, you stupid, ignorant morons. And then God says, wait, do you see yourself in this? And I usually argue and go, not really. And he goes, look closer. Because <laughs> guys, this is us. All the promises that God has promised us and we turn our backs to them and we go, yeah, I'm not sure about it. And we bicker and we moan. Really, this is your, your plan for me? This is your lot in life? I have, to, I have to live in this culture, in this context, in the mess that this is it? This is what you've given me? This is the joy of my salvation. This is, this is your promise. See, that's exactly what these Jewish Christians are questioning is, I thought when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, it was gonna get better. It's actually gotten worse. And that's why this is so important. You murmured in your tents. You ever guilty of murmuring in your tent? I am. I, I, can, I can have a great day with the Lord and then I can that night murmur as I go to sleep about something that happened that day or something I think is going to happen tomorrow or something that I felt like was unfair to me. See, they murmured 
And, and look at what they says. The Lord hated us. Man, that's a, that's a very dangerous thing to accuse God of hatred when hatred is not there. The Lord hated us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Really, that's God's plan to destroy you. You really think he saved you, did 10 plagues, and brought you all the way across the wilderness to the land of Canaan so he can kill you. Couldn't he have killed you there? I mean, the, the logic or the lack of logic in this is amazing. But the bottom line was they would not go up. They refused to enter the land. What land? The land flowing with milk and honey, the land with everything they need. They refused to go in. They rebelled against who? God Almighty, the promise keeper. The one who said, this is your inheritance. This is your land. You'll all get plots. You'll all have abundance. You'll actually harvest crops you didn't plant. You'll live in homes you didn't build. You'll dwell in cities you didn't construct. You'll have everything you need. And yet they said, no, not going to do it. But why? Why did they rebel against God? What was the motivation? Because they listened to the spies. This is all chronicled in Numbers 13 when, when we're told how they get to the land, it's right across the river, and the people decide they're gonna send in spies. Let's go check it out first. Before we go in, let's see what it's like. And God okays that plan. He says, send them in, check it out. And they go in. And when they come back, here's what they say. The people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. This is the message they came back with. Oh, they had a second part of the message. They said, it's rich, it's abundant, and it's got grapes like you wouldn't believe. And they brought back a cluster that they had to carry between two poles. So they brought evidence of the abundance, but what did they do? They said, yet we can't go up. Why? Because the land's full of giants. The land's full of fortified cities. The land's full of enemies. And what did God say? The land's full of giants. The land's full of fortified enemies. The land, it's okay. Because I'm going with you. Because it's your land. I promised it to you. But they said, no, we can't. See, here's what Moses says. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. I don't care what you see. I don't care how big the Amorites are, how numerous they are. Go in and take it because I go before you and I will fight all your battles on your behalf. It's your land. Just take possession of it. But the bad report of those 10 spies produced a really, really, really bad decision on the part of the people. Look what happens. The whole community began weeping aloud and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt and even here in the wilderness, they complained. And again, it, I just so much of me just wants to slap them and shake them by the robe and go, what is wrong with you? Look at what God has done for you. Have you forgotten about the plagues? Have you forgotten about the protection from the death angel? Have you forgotten about walking across on dry land? Have you forgotten about the man or the quail? Your shoes didn't wear out. Your clothes didn't wear out. The rock that followed you and gushed water for you. Have you forgotten about all of that? And yes, they had. Why? Because there's enemies in the land. They go on and say, why is the Lord taking us to this country only to let us die in battle? 
Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? You know, what hits me about this is that what goes through my mind, I I did something I shouldn't have done this morning. I checked my newsfeed before I got in the car. And here's what goes through my mind. The enemy's winning. We're going to get defeated. They're greater than we are. They're more numerous than we are. They have control of the media. They have control of this. They have control of the universities. We can't win this battle. And what do they say? You're going to take us into this country that we would die in battle. Is God going to let us die in battle? Maybe. But does that mean we lose the battle? No, because he's the one who will win the battle. Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? And then they plotted among themselves, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They were ready and willing to go back to the land where they had been enslaved. They were ready to go back to that. What are these people to whom the author is writing getting ready to do? Go back to the slavery of the law. Going back to trying to keep God satisfied and earn righteousness by keeping the law, earning it. He says, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. This little phrase, they have not known my ways is incredibly powerful. And and I hope it speaks to you like it's spoken to me this week. Ignorance of God's ways will always leads you to ignore his will. If you don't understand what God is doing, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be the first to admit, there are days I go, I, I don't have a clue what you're doing, God. I do not understand why Oscar Perez has a tumor on his brainstem. I don't understand that. But I do know this, that God is greater than that tumor. And that God, regardless of what happens, will be glorified. And he will bring people to faith through whatever happens in Oscar's life. See, I I have to understand that God's ways are greater than my ways. These people, despite all that God had done, couldn't grasp what God was doing. And the same thing can be true of you and I. I can go back and read the Bible. I can quote the Bible. I can tell stories from the Bible. I can talk about all the great things that God has done. And I may not really understand what he's doing. I know Jesus Christ came, lived, died, rose again, ascended on high, someday is coming back, but I don't always understand what he's doing right here, right now, at this moment, in my life, in your life, in this church, in this city, in this nation, in this world, but he's doing something. And he's not done doing that something. He has a plan. He's working that plan to perfection. And see, they took their eyes off of that. And his future promises were overshadowed by their petty personal problems. Oh, there's giants in the land. Oh, they're more numerous than us. They're greater than us. They've got fortified cities and we're just, we're just shepherds. We were slaves. We don't even really have weapons. We, no, you have God Almighty. The God who defeated the Egyptians, one of the greatest armies in that day and age. See, they didn't understand God's ways. And God's ways honestly don't always make sense to you and I, right? And that shouldn't be a news to anybody in the room because God told us they wouldn't. See, he doesn't ask you to comprehend his, his ways necessarily. You don't have to get it. You don't have to understand it. 
There's not a test where God says, okay, can you explain all my ways? Do you understand what I'm doing? He never asked you to take that test. It's not a quiz. All he says is, will you comply? Will you be faithful? Will you obey? Based on, you trust me. He never said what those spies is saying is a lie. You know, Caleb and Joshua were, t- were the two spies who basically said, yeah, there are, there's, there are giants in the land and they're, they're big, they're bad, they're ugly, but it's okay, let's go, because God's promised it. They didn't deny what the spies said, the other spies. They just said, let's just trust God. You know, when you read the news or you watch the news or, you, you know, if you still get the paper, you look at the paper, a lot of what it says is false, but a lot of what it says is true. But guess what? So is our God. And he's greater and he's bigger. And he can do what he says he's going to do. That's why he tells you and I, my thoughts are not your thoughts. They're nothing even remotely the same. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here's God doing what the psalmist did. He, he, he points their eyes to the heavens and he says, you know, my, my ways and my thoughts are, are higher than the heavens. They, you can't grasp the heavens. You know, we have telescopes and we can look farther than the psalmist could see into the heavens. And we know that there's billions and billions of stars and billions of galaxies and but we still can't comprehend it. And guess what? I can't comprehend the ways of God. I, I can't explain God. I, I just need to trust God and then comply with what he asked me to do. And that's what these people need to do. But circumstances had clouded their view of God. Here's what happened. Their perspective produced these thoughts, disbelief regarding God's promises. I know he said it, I just don't believe it. I know he, he said it's ours, but I don't think he can deliver. It produced thoughts of denial concerning his power and his goodness, that he's not powerful enough, he's not strong enough, and he's not good enough. If he's not strong enough, that means he's not good because he lied to you. It's yours, but I, I can't really deliver it. What kind of God is that? Thoughts of God as their enemy and not their deliverer. You wanna kill us, you wanna destroy us. Thoughts of returning to the good old days. That's really what they're saying when they, let's go back to Egypt. They had really selective memory. And they've said this before, the the Israelites have said it about, you know, let's go back to when we had plenty of food and we had leeks and onions and we had all this great food. And it's like, you were slaves. Going back to the good old days. No, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This, This is, man, if you hear nothing else, hear this. What he's saying to these people is, your ancestors didn't get my rest. And guess what? If you go down the path you're about to go, you'll not get my rest. And you may not understand the rest of God, but I hope you understand you need the rest of God. Not just for the future, but right here, right now. That's why he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Who's he talking to? Those Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to the law. Take care, don't repeat what your ancestors did. Who else is he talking to? You and me. Take care, brothers, lest there be any any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Why would he say that? Because there's the tendency and the potential for us doing just that. 
That's why he says, take care. He wants them to learn the lesson and God wants you and I to learn the lesson. Don't make the same mistake of developing an unbelieving heart. See, when you begin to doubt God and, and fail to trust God, you will become increasingly more disbelieving. You will, you, you'll just more and more, you'll, you'll begin to doubt that God can do what he says he can do. And that literally is walking away from God. You'll make the mistake of allowing sin to deceive and harden you. See, the enemy is always whispering in your ear, you can't trust him, he's not good, he's not, he's not great, he can't do it. Your God is not who he says he is, he's a liar. And you begin to listen to those lies and you begin to believe those lies and then you neglect brotherly encouragement. See, one of the things I love about what we do here is that you sit around these tables. Some of you may hate that. You know, you would just love to come and sit in a chair six feet, you, you would love to go back to the social distancing, right? sit in a chair six feet away from any other human being, hear the lecture, go home and go about your business. But we make you sit at these tables because we want you to share and encourage one another. That's what this is all about. That's why he says, encourage one another while it's still today. I need encouragement, you need encouragement so that you will not doubt God's goodness and his greatness. And guess what? There will some, something will come into your life that will cause you to doubt the goodness and greatness of God. And when that happens to me, I need you to be able to say, hey, you can trust him. I know it's tough. I know you don't understand it, but you can trust God. That's what we need to pray for the Perez family, that they would continue to trust in God's goodness and greatness, regardless of what happens. Because if you don't, you're gonna make the mistake of refusing to enter into the promise of his rest. That's why in chapter four, he says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, there were some all the way back those thousands of years ago, standing on the bank of the Jordan River who did, did believe. But there were a lot of people who said no. They heard, but they failed to believe. And what he's saying to us is that you don't, again, want to repeat that mistake or you will not enter his rest. See, guys, I don't think this is a talking about you getting into heaven because heaven is not the only form of rest. It's the ultimate form of rest, but we should have rest right now. I fear not enjoying his rest now. I don't fear losing his rest to come. It's the fact that I could live the rest of my life, however long that is, without enjoying the rest that's been promised. And it's a far greater rest than I could ever imagine and you could ever imagine. This is what he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Thousands of years later, he's writing to a new group of Israelites, a new generation of Israelites, and he goes, guess what? The promise still stands that you can have his rest. Where are they living? Outside the promised land. Is he telling them that God's gonna get you into the promised land? Is that his point? No, they're gonna all probably die outside the promised land. So what's the rest? What's he promising these Israelites who don't live in Israel, the rest of God? So that means it's not a place. And that means it's not just heaven, okay? We know that heaven's a great thing. The eternal kingdom is a wonderful thing, but Jesus, offered us rest right here, right now, not just for the future. See, their rest was to be found in God, not Canaan. 
And this is huge. The rest that God wants us to have is not a place. It's going to be him. See, the next generation of Israelites eventually, 40 years later, entered the land, but they never experienced God's rest. You may have never thought about this. 40 years later, first generation dies off because they refuse to go in. Next generation goes in and they never experience the rest of God. And yet they're in the land of promise. What's up with that? Was God a liar? Did God cheat them? No, they actually occupied cities they never built, homes they never constructed. They had plenty of food, plenty of water. They had the presence of God, but they never enjoyed his rest. Why? Because they focused on the wrong thing. They were looking for the wrong thing. They expected Canaan to deliver a trouble-free existence. See, that's the false bill of goods that we sell people when we sell the gospel to them is that your life's gonna get better. Just place your faith in Jesus Christ and everything's gonna get great. Your marriage is gonna improve. You're, you're gonna get a better job. You'll never have sickness. And guess what? They become a Christian, what happens? None of the above. And they go, what, what did I buy into? See, God never promised us a trouble-free existence or your best life now, despite a best-selling book. It's not a constant flow of God's blessings. Do you know you can go through a day and not necessarily feel or experience the blessings of God? You may have trouble, you may have trials. I, I guarantee the Perez family doesn't necessarily at this moment feel blessed by God. It doesn't mean they don't believe in God, trust in God, but that doesn't feel like a blessing, right? That feels like a curse to have your son go through an operation like that. See, we want heaven on earth, but that's not what he came to promise. Circumstances can never bring rest. That's the point of this whole passage. For if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua was the one who replaced Moses and got them into the land. And what he's saying is he never brought them rest. He got them into the land. They conquered the nations. Why would God not have spoken of another, why would God have spoken of another day later on? If Joshua getting them into the land had brought them into rest, why are we talking about a rest yet to come? So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no, no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience entering God's rest. The rest he's talking about is the rest we find in Christ. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and just work, work your way through the rest of the Old Testament. He's the solution. He's the promise. He is the rest. It's not a place. What did he tell us? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you what? Rest. When? Heaven? No, now. Heaven's just the fulfillment, the culmination, the completion. But he said, I came that you might have rest. And it's, it's interesting that this is the same promise that God gave to Moses. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. When did he say this to him? Long before he ever got to the land of Canaan. And guess what? This guy never went into the land of Canaan. He died in the wilderness. Well, that, how did that happen? because it was always about God. It's not about a land. It's not about a place. It's about God. And in these closing verses, he says, then 
We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. His whole point is, where is Jesus now? He's sitting at the right hand of the father. All the promises he's made, you can trust in because he's done what he said he would do and he sits at the father's side and he's our high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who, who is tempted as we have been tempted. He knows what it's like to be us. He's know, he knows what it's like to live in this earth. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may have mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 16 says something really interesting that I think we can blow past. He says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. What's, what's the throne of grace? Mitchell and I were talking about this this last week because it's gonna come up again next week. In the tabernacle, there was a throne. It was called the Ark of the Covenant on which was the mercy seat. And who dwelled on the mercy seat? God Almighty, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies came and dwelled on that mercy seat. And that was the throne of God on earth. Where is Jesus Christ? He's in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly tabernacle, seated on the throne of grace. And every day we can find mercy and grace for all of our needs. That's a promise. Why can we trust that promise? Because God said it, Jesus made it possible. And no matter what comes our way, we can find rest even in the midst of turmoil, trial, heartache, sorrow, difficulty. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ did. So how do our lives exhibit a lack of rest or wrong expectation of what rest should be? How do we do it? We all do it, right? I, I, I really hope at no table there's a, a, just a group of men with blank stares that we all misunderstand God's rest. So we're looking for the wrong thing and then we end up lacking rest and we have heartache and hurt and turmoil and worry and anxiety. I want you to discuss this quote. What will make the eternal kingdom great is not the absence of sin, but the presence of God. See, think about that. I often say, man, I can't wait to get, get to heaven so I won't sin anymore. No, that's not the point of heaven. It's God, the presence of God. I'm not even gonna think about not sinning in heaven because it won't even cross my mind. I'm gonna think about what God Almighty and his son. Finally, why should the author's mention of Jesus as our great high priest bring us rest right here and now? Why does he even bring that up? Father, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, it's deep, it's rich, it's sometimes hard to fathom, hard to understand, but Father, you have given us these words of encouragement that we might understand just how great you truly are. What a great salvation you've made available to every man in this room through Jesus Christ, that Father, this was your plan and you've worked that plan to perfection. Your son did what he was set out to do he completed the task. He now sits at your right hand, but he's far from done. He's working on our behalf. He represents us before you. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He pours out his spirit upon us every single day. We have everything we need, as Peter said, for life and godliness. May we focus on that and may we understand what it means to find rest right here, right now. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.